Good morning. Good to see you this morning. We are so glad that you are here. If you have your Bibles to open up to Acts chapter 2, we're going to spend some time in chapter 2 and in chapter 4 this morning, especially from Acts. We're going to start in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, so how many of you have ever seen the movie Field of Dreams? Show of hands. Okay, the movie came out in 1989, so I'm guessing that some of our younger people may not have seen that movie unless their parents introduced it to them. But it was in the news quite a bit lately, uh, a few weeks ago especially, because Major League Baseball decided to relive and recapture a little of the nostalgia of that movie. They built an actual baseball field near the movie set field. So it's in Iowa, plowed up some more corn to build a field. This time they had some bleachers and a few thousand people were able to show up and see this game, and they brought in the Yankees and the White Sox, and of course they had to bring in Kevin Costner, and he did some dramatic prose before the game started. And it was really beautiful. I didn't watch the game, but I saw a lot of highlights, and it's compelling to see. It's compelling to watch. It's compelling to see a home run fly over the field next to an old-timey scoreboard into a field of corn. It was was really something to see. Now, for those of you who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why anyone would build a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield. Here is the overly simplistic three to four sentence rundown of this movie from 1989. So there is a family with the husband being Kevin Costner, and they live in Iowa, and they are farmers, and they grow corn, and their farm is about to go under. They can't afford the mortgage. They don't have any more money. And so, of course, then he starts hearing voices. And the first thing the voice that he hears tells him is, if you build it, they will come. And so what do you do if you're about to lose your farm and everything is about to go under and you start hearing voices? Well, of course, you plow under part of your corn and you build a baseball field. And um, if you've not seen it, ghosts show up, old-timey baseball player ghosts from the the shamed uh, Black Sox from 1919. 
How's that for a rundown for those who have seen the movie? Pretty, pretty good and pretty horrible at the same time. Those who have not seen her are like, I still don't have a clue what you're talking about. Well, I will tell you that ultimately, if you ever watch the movie, and I've just spoiled part of the movie, but it's been around for about 32 years, so you've had time. That's your, that's your warning. If you watch the movie, then you will see that the movie, although it, it's centered around baseball, or as James Earl Jones would say, baseball, Ray. It's not really about baseball, is it? It's about reconnecting and rebuilding lost relationships. It's about reconciliation and restoring a family that was lost. And so one of the last people that Kevin Costner's character connects with is his father, who he had lost connection with in life, and then his father died, and he thought the time was past, there was no more time, and he met the younger version of his father near the end of the movie, and they, they start to rekindle a relationship that was lost. And there is this iconic exchange that happens between father and son, and there is one of the most famous questions and answers that comes in the movie, and I want to show it to you now. So let's watch. Can I ask you something? Is, is this heaven? It's Iowa. Iowa? I went to a wedding in Iowa two years ago. I never once asked the question, is this heaven? Lo lovely corn country. It was, it was lovely people, too. I was never confused, but here's, here's why I play that part. I get the feeling when I read through Acts 2, this, this description of church, and then when you read a little bit further in Acts 4, I get the feeling from the picture that Luke paints that by the end, he's hoping the early readers of this text will ask something similar. When they see that picture of church, they ask, is, is this heaven? To which Luke says, no. It's church, but when you have people like on the day of Pentecost, from various tribes and tongues and backgrounds and worldviews, and they come from very different places, but they unite together as one, then that is a little taste of heaven on earth. Or when you have these very different people bond together over the purposes 
of Jesus to bring hope to the nations and healing in our hurting world. That is a little taste of heaven on earth. And when you have a group of people devote themselves to learning and leaning into things that last, not all the petty, temporary things, but things that move on into God's future, into God's eternity, then that is a little taste of heaven on earth. And when you have a group of people who are devoted to pray and then seek for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we open our hearts and we open our minds and we open our eyes to see little glimpses of heaven on earth. And when we get together and we get past this notion that gathering as a community and living life together is about my wants and my needs and my preferences and my comfort zone, and we start to see that it is about giving all I have to lift up others and lift up the name of God and lean into the ways of God, then we start to get a little taste of heaven on earth. Now, Dr. Westbrook alluded to this in his talk at the 9 o'clock hour, and I think it's important to recognize the early church was never a perfect church. It doesn't take long to read through Acts or read through the epistles and realize they had some real highs and some real lows. They had a lot of strengths and they had weaknesses, just like every church in every age. But the picture that Luke is painting, especially in these opening chapters. The picture is brochure material, right? The picture he paints is what you want on your homepage of your website. The picture that he paints is the stock photo. This is the one that shows the possibility. Here's what we can be if we lean into God's ways, if we devote ourselves fully and faithfully to one another and to God. And there's one aspect of these passages that I especially want to drill down deeper on this morning, and that is, what does it mean, or especially what does Luke mean when he says in verse 44 that all believers were together and had everything in common. And one of the things that I would let you know is that when Luke says this, he's not pulling that phrase out of thin air. He's actually grabbing onto a popular phrase that Greek philosophers had been using for several hundred years to describe the ideal of friendship and fellowship. And here's what they would say frequently, friends hold all things in common. Philosophers had been saying that for hundreds of years. Friends hold all things in common. And so when Luke grabs onto that phrase, I think part of what he's doing is saying, hey, you know that ideal that you have of friendship and fellowship? 
That's the church. At least that's what the church is supposed to be. It's what it can be. Now, when we use the phrase, everything in common, or when we talk about people that have things in common, what do we usually mean? We more often mean shared interests, right? When we talk about things in common, we talk about shared interests. So you meet someone I meet someone at church, and I learn they're big Razorback fans. Then I say, oh, you should meet Gary Adams. He starred for the Razorback. Boy, he's got some stories. Oh, you should meet my friend Chris Henry. He's had season tickets for as long as I've known him. You should connect. You guys would have a lot in common. Or I meet someone else, and they say, I'm an accountant. I'd say, oh, we've got a lot of accountants in our church. I know you accountants want to get together and talk, talk accounting. There's kind of endless conversations. Am I right, Brock? Just, just amazing conversations. Hey, you should, you should meet my friends TJ and Cindy Boyle. They're both accountants, big wigs, and they're accounting firms. But like competing accounting firms, the Hatfields, I'm going to get it out eventually, Hatfields and McCoys. Is that right? Yeah. I said it, and then it sounded wrong because I couldn't even get the words out originally. I'm, I'm stuck like two minutes back in what I'm saying. You should, you should meet the Boyles. These are, these are great people. You like coffee. I've got a really unhealthy connection to coffee. Let's get together and talk about it. Over coffee, of course, right? You like doubles tennis? You like Ted Lasso? You like fly fishing. You like hole-in-the-wall restaurants. We ought to get together and share these things in common. That's what we think about when we think of in common. And there's certainly a part of that that's going on in the early church. There's a lot that's bonding them together. Belief that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the one who is bringing healing creation and hope to all people. That bonds them together and committing themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the stories of Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of what God bonds them together and praying regularly together for God's ways or simply breaking bread, sharing life, meeting together regularly, being in one another's homes. That will bond you together. But when Luke talks about this idea of things in common. And he talks about it in chapter 2, and he's going to talk about it in chapter 4. The idea is not just shared interests, and it is not that they agree on all things, as we'll see quickly in Acts and in the other epistles. Having all things in common is actually fleshed out in the next verse. In verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Or in chapter 4, starting in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. What does he mean by that? Well, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That's the NIV. But literally it says they, they held it in common. 
With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. Now listen to how he describes God's grace, that there were no needy persons among them. That's how you know God's grace is alive among you. Okay, I want to stop there for a moment to tell you another thing that Luke is referencing. Because when he talks about there were no needy people among you, that's promised land language. That's what Israel was told would happen when they got to the promised land. Deuteronomy 15.4, there'll be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will bless you richly. Okay, so Luke is saying, hey, to the Greek world, you know that ideal of friendship that you hold up, of fellowship? That's church. And to the Jews, he's saying, hey, you know the picture of the promised land, land flowing with milk and honey where there's no one in need because of God's provision. The land that God provides will take care of you. That's the church. But notice the picture here. Instead of the land providing, it's what? It's the people even providing their land so that no one is in need. So it continues in chapter 4. From time to time, those who land or houses sold them, brought the money uh, from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now it's clear they didn't all empty out all their lands, all their accounts, all their houses at once. This was a way of saying that when they saw need and those who could address that need, they continued to do it. Now, I will be honest. This is a time when folks get to passages like this that sometimes the ears close and the brain shuts off just a little bit because they hear the discussion of in common and in the past they fear communism. And I would simply encourage you, don't get bogged down in that part of the message because this is not an argument for a governmental organizational structure when it comes to economics. What this is, is a depiction of the early church and the way they held up not just themselves, but one another. And it is about an attitude of love and compassion and care that goes beyond simply looking out for me and says, I'm going to look out for you. And I'm going to trust that you look out for me. And it's also about how we view our stuff. Ultimately, do we think of what we have as ours or do we think of what we have as God's? And if we think of what we have as ultimately coming from God, then when we see that we've got uh, things that someone else needs, then instead of simply holding on, we share. And we talked about this a few months ago when we looked at a passage in 2 Corinthians 8. And you can see that that picture of there was, there was no one in need doesn't last long because Paul is... 
uh, doing a collection, a big collection for people in poverty in the church in Jerusalem. There is poverty that keeps going. And so it is an ongoing challenge of the church to say, how can we be there for people in poverty? And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality, that everyone has enough. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Now, I want to give you a wonderful example of how I think this applies, but it goes so much further than just material goods or money. Okay, so here's a picture behind me. This is of retired district court judge Keith Davison. Lives in Minnesota. He is 94 years old, and his wife of 66 years died a couple of years ago. And the loneliness was overwhelming. They did not have any kids. And his sense of loneliness and isolation was bringing him down. And in the midst of his grief and pain, he started to realize something. He started to realize that there was a way that he could bless his neighborhood and in the process that he himself would be blessed. So I want to watch just a little bit of a video and then we'll continue. Now, at 94, the judge has reached a decision. Here comes the cement truck. 94. Right here. As he pondered a backyard addition and took the plunge. It's 16 by 32 of the pool itself. Deep into missing his Abby, the judge had had enough silence. Hi. Then quit. You ready to go swimming? Quiet. <laughs> One of the judges' pool. <laughs> I knew they'd come. <laughs> Plenty of people thought the judge was joking when he first floated this idea. This spring, when I saw him mark in the yard, I told my husband, he's really going to do it. He's really going to put a pool in his backyard. Hard to be lonely, he reckoned, if he surrounded himself with kids. It's awesome and fun. Now we're going to be here every day. I'm not sitting by myself uh, looking at the walls. And it's him spreading joy throughout our neighborhood for these kids. And you get to know him and talk to him. That's one of the things just talked about. He's like, I never had any grandkids. And, and so in a way, we're like, well, you kind of adopted our whole neighborhood of, of kids. These are your grandkids. Thank you. You're welcome. Come again, Ireland. Grief <laughs> can be a deep, lonely place. <laughs> Judge Davison what? took another step out the day the neighborhood dove in. Do you have a feeling that the kids were walking by his house before this, whispering, if you build it, we will swim? I love, I love that image for so many reasons. It's, it's a beautiful story. And I think it illustrates a, a beautiful picture that Luke is painting of what the community can be because the judge had 
land, and he had money. What he didn't have was community anymore. He didn't have those connections. I'm guessing the kids didn't have a whole lot of land or money to their name, but what they had was love and vitality and joy and presence And when the church is living out our call to the body, that's what happens. It's not one-sided. There may be some who can bring certain material gifts to the table, but there are other places of deficit, other places where they lack, where they're hurting, where they need help, where each person has something that they bring because every part of the body is gifted by God, equipped by God empowered by God to strengthen the other. And when the church is living out our church of what it means to share what we have in common, then we all bring those gifts and those talents, our time and our training, our energy, our effort, our listening ear, our compassion, and we lay it on the table and we say, this is what I've got. This is how I can help. And another says, well, this is what I've got. This is how I can help. And another says, this is what I've got. This is how I can help. And together, we lift up one another. And together, we lift up the name of Jesus. And together, we lift up a light in the dark world so that people see us. And they say, that that sure seems like a little glimpse of heaven on earth. It may be material goods, but it's not just that. Sometimes it's spiritual strengths. Sometimes you might lack patience, and another has it, and so you lean on them. And sometimes they might have a sense of urgency. This can't wait anymore. We've got to act now. And they move you out of that place of patience, which can become a place of complacency. Sometimes you may be lacking in hope. I've had those moments where someone says, I I hope on this, they hold on to hope, and I say, I'm going to have to lean on to your hope because I'm not feeling it right now. And so I grab onto them as they hold on to hope, and together we hold on Uh, to one another. Or I've had those times where I've talked with people who are living through grief, they're going through pain, and I say, I'm praying for you. And they honestly admit, I'm thankful you're praying because I don't have the words right now. And so I say, you don't have to. I'm going to pray for both of us. Like that story from Exodus 17, where Moses is praying and he's lifting up his hands in prayer, but he's getting exhausted and he can't hold his hands up anymore. And so Aaron and her come beside him and they hold his hands up. So his prayers keep going. Sometimes you may have a heart of service that others lack. And I would say, don't judge, inspire, lead, Come alongside, say, hey, this is what we can do. This is how we can help. And this is how I'll help us get deeper 
in service, whatever it is, you're going to have places of plenty where someone else has a deficit. And you're going to have places where you're at a deficit. And other people have an abundance. And when we devote ourselves to God and one another, the grace of God overflows among us to where we can say, even though there is need when we come in, by the time we leave, there is no one still at need among us. At least no one who has to address those needs alone. We'll never get that perfect. But when we grow into that mindset that what I have is not mine, but it's God's. And so if you need it, you've got it. That is just a little taste of heaven on earth.